Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check and with your hosts, senior legal analysts Amani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo. In this episode, we discuss the Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Woods specialty cases challenging the contraception mandate in the Affordable Care Act and unpack the legal and political arguments before the Supreme Court. So big day at the Supreme Court, oral arguments for Hobby Lobby and the Conestoga Woods specialty cases. And apparently there's confusion out there about what are the issues before the court and what's at stake. So this seems like a perfect opportunity for you and I to break this down for folks. I agree. And it's such a crucial issue. And I have to admit, I've been very, very excited about these oral arguments for a very long time, mostly because I'm a bit of a law nerd in that way. But it really is striking to me how many people, whether it be just your average layperson or people in the media or people who are supposed to know these things, still seem to be confused about what's at stake. You know, I think some of the confusion, too, comes from a lot of the willful misinformation that the folks opposed to the contraception mandate have put out there. Uh, We've talked about how there's two tracks, really, to the challenges, right? We've got the political track and we've got the legal track. And among the areas of, of confusion, I think, is this really broad statement that corporate Corporation owners have religious rights that they get to exercise through their businesses. And that's just fundamentally a misstatement of the law. Yeah, it really is. And and to adhere to that notion would be a fundamental rewriting of corporate law. And so what these corporations are trying to do is they're trying to avail themselves of the bits of corporate law that they like, but then ignore the stuff that they don't want to adhere to. So for example, when you form a corporation, you get to avail yourself of limited liability. So if your company gets sued, then you personally as an owner or as a shareholder, by and large, are not responsible for whatever liability you incur. And that's why people form corporations. But what these, what these corporations and these corporate owners want to do is to sort of pass through their own religious liberty through to the corporation. And that's just not A, that's not how it works. And B, the point is that Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood or any of these corporations that are seeking religious liberty, that it's the corporation that will have to pay the fine, not the actual individual owners. So there's this attempt to conflate the owners with the corporation. And that violates literally hundreds of years of corporate law. And when we talk about conflating the corporation with the owner and violating hundreds of years of corporate law, we have to think of why would they want to do it? There have been some amicus briefs that have been filed by states, by especially by states with Republican governors that are making the argument that well, you know, we have state laws that govern corporate law and it's, you know, it's improper for the Supreme Court or for any, for Congress or any federal level uh, entity to try to state what the law should be in the states. But at a certain point, there has to be rules and there have to be regulations. And while it is true there is no federal body of corporate law, there are laws that underpin all of the state corporate laws. So what they're trying to do really seems to me to be is to dismantle corporate law as we know it. Absolutely. And so a good examples of some of those federal laws that underpin state corporate law would be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, for example. Any of our fair employment type laws, overtime, wage compensation, anything that we've seen historically for-profit corporations raise objections to under the guise of religious liberty. This is nothing new. And for some reason, we've found a new way to package it and to sell it. 
Yeah, I think it's gotten, like you mentioned earlier that there's sort of two tracks. There's the legal track and the political track. I think, you know, I think if, you, if we were to look at it purely from a political standpoint, I would have to admit that Hobby Lobby is winning. But when you look at the actual legal arguments, and there are so many legal arguments, whether or not you want to talk about the elements of RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or whether you want to talk about the Free Exercise Clause or the Establishment Clause, I really do think in terms of legal arguments that the, 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 the birth control enthusiasts, such as we are, have the winning argument. So the question really becomes whether or not the Supreme Court is so politicized at this point in time that it will sway towards the politicization of these cases rather than following what the law says. Because in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinions, if you are going to look at the, am the number of amicus briefs filed as any indication, it's that we, we win. The birth, you know, Copy Lobby loses, Conestoga Woods loses, you know, they can't burden third parties. They can't make us pay for their religion by denying us birth control or forcing us to pay out of pocket for birth control. That's an excellent point. And so because the politics has driven much of the conversation around the legal claims, what hopefully we will see or hear in oral arguments is the legal claims rising to the top. So you mentioned the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's the primary statute under which these claims um, have arisen. And that's a federal statute that's designed to reinforce certain individual Liber religious liberty rights from government uh, regulations. And that's important because what's really at, at issue here out of the gates is the definition of person under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and whether or not uh, that definition of person includes a corporate person, um, as in a for-profit pro corporation. So there is an opportunity for the court to give a what some might consider technical or procedural type of ruling and avoid the large issue of whether your boss can object to contraception based on religious grounds and say that they don't fit the profile or the definition under the statute. So that's one possibility. If they don't, then I guess we'll have a much better understanding of just how politicized the Roberts Court has become, and in particular on issues of of the culture wars like contraception and healthcare, abortion, gay rights, we've seen it. Right. And I think just it's really important to recognize that what we're talking about here is not women who want free birth control so they can go out and be promiscuous. or And it's not that women want employers to give them birth control or to pay them for birth control or to provide free birth control. What we're talking about here is including birth control as a part of reproductive health care, and because employees of businesses pay for their health care through insurance premiums, birth control should be a part of the health care to which they are entitled. So instead, of, essentially we are saying that there shouldn't be a health care gap that the employers can create because they think that their religious liberty prevents them from having to provide a certain type of health care to which they are opposed. That's exactly it. We talk about a gendered wage gap, and what we are talking about with the contraception mandate is a gendered health care gap. Hopefully, the Roberts Court agrees with us. I have to say this is the one of the biggest cases of the year, um, and it has a lot it's going to have a lot of, of influence on what happens in, in future court cases and also in the states. I mean, you have this push right now to pass what I like to call these baby rifras, these, these tiny little religious freedom restoration acts, um, laws 
that are intended to discriminate against people. So in this case, we're discriminating against women because we're, we're saying an entire category of their healthcare isn't really healthcare. In Arizona, as we saw, they're trying to discriminate against lesbian, gays, and transgendered people. Um, and what it, what it boils down to is, are we going to allow religious tyranny to, to um, allow discrimination against, uh, against oppressed groups or minority groups. I think the movement at the state level, I'm glad you brought it up. It's really important because I also think it speaks to maybe some concerns that the opposition has about the merits of their case at the Supreme Court. You know, civics and federalism sounds really dry and dull and boring. And for some folks, it might be. But it's really important when we talk about these kind of challenges here, because when the states pass those baby refris or their mini refris, what they're basically trying to do is create extra protections at the state level that the federal law doesn't recognize. So Arizona doing that is basically, you know, trying to pad its itself to say, well, in the event that it doesn't go well at the federal level here in Arizona or in Mississippi or some of the other states that have had pushed these or through or, or trying to expand their RIFRAs already on on the books, we're going to at least create these little pockets of discrete state protection for this kind of discriminatory conduct. Thankfully, there's been a pushback against it. But I think that's an important point that doesn't really get drawn out in this conversation. Yeah, and I also think that the pushback at the state level might influence the pushback at the federal level because people will start to see how it is these laws are being used. Because for some reason, as Professor Elizabeth Sepper um, mentioned to to me in in an interview that I did with her for an article that I wrote, that there just seems to be this overwhelming feeling that birth control and reproductive health care isn't really health care. And so I don't think people, people seem to not care about it as much as they do about protecting the rights of lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgendered people to frequent businesses. Or if you really want to go to the extreme, protecting the rights of minorities, blacks and Latinas and what have you to frequent businesses. I mean, that's what we're really talking about. That's the slippery slope. And so I think the slippery slope might actually change some, change some minds and force people to think about what it is that these states are trying to do with these little Religious Freedom Restoration Act laws. So that's some cold comfort. I mean, that's good news in the sense that um, the overreach may have done exactly what overreach does, which causes people to recoil against it. But unfortunately, respecting women's autonomy and their own health care and reproductive health care needs, let alone their benefits and contributions to the workplace, that somehow has not been sufficient enough yet to to get people riled up against this. The good news is they just announced that they have extended oral arguments from an hour to an hour and a half. So we have more time to sort this out. The bad news is we'll likely be waiting till the end of June for a decision. So for folks like you and me, Imani, that means a lot of, um, I don't know, yelling at, on the Internet and teeth gnashing over the pol- the politicization and rhetoric around the contraception mandate and the legal challenges, particularly in the media. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting spring. And I think this is going to be as huge of a of a June as we saw last year with DOMA and the year before with Obamacare. I mean, the Supreme Court is taking some juicy cases and this is one of the juicier ones. Agreed. A thousand percent. And thankfully, we have Emily Martin from the National Women's Law Center to help further explain exactly what the issues are before the court and the range of possible outcomes that we could see come this summer. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. 
We are joined with Emily Martin, Vice President and General Counsel for the National Women's Law Center. Thank you for having me. So there's been pages and pages and pages of briefing, hundreds and hundreds of pages of briefing that I know you, Amani, and I have all sort of poured through at various points in times. But I'm curious as to what you see as some of the most important issues before the Roberts Court in the Hobby Lobby and Conestoga cases. Well, one of the most important issues is sort of the key threshold issue, which is whether a for-profit corporation like Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood has the right to exercise religion. And that is sort of the the question that the court will have to answer before it gets to any of the other questions in the case. And it's a question with really big implications since what Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood are arguing are that they as for-profit corporations uh, not only have religious rights, um, basically the right to pray as corporations, but they have the they have the right to exercise their religion in a way that harms third parties. And that's a fairly radical assertion which, with apparent um, potentially large implications if they were to succeed in those arguments. Can you lay out some of the uh, implications for what those would be? So if Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood were to succeed in this case, then presumably for-profit employers would have the right to object to providing all sorts of other kinds of health care coverage based on their religion everything from vaccines to blood transfusions to HIV treatment, that those are all kinds of uh, health care that a for-profit employer could potentially say, you know, I have a religious problem with this coverage of your insurance. We're not going to cover that regardless of what um, we would be legally required to cover otherwise. But it's also the case that it goes even beyond the healthcare context, since if an employer has a religious right to say, you know what, we're not going to follow this law and we're not going to provide the birth control that we are legally required to provide and that you have a right to, an employer could also assert, you know, we, a for-profit corporation, have a religious objection, for example, to paying women as much as we pay men. And even though the law requires us to do that, because that substantially burdens our religion, we don't think we have to. And those are the sorts of cases that you could see. You could also see cases where uh, for-profit employers assert that they have the right to, for example, deny services to somebody based on their sexual orientation or their race. The same sorts of issues that we heard being debated in Arizona recently when Arizona was trying to broaden its uh, religious rights bill to include corporations. Those are all possible consequences if Hobby Lobby were to succeed in all its arguments before the court. Why do you think that the opposition so far has succeeded in largely framing this as an issue of religious liberty when in reality there's so much more going on here? Frankly, I think that the conversation in Arizona was helpful in its timing in making clear where religious liberty arguments can lead if you give for-profit corporations really broad religious rights. And making clear that what we're really talking about here is the assertion that 
religion gives you the right to discriminate against others and to harm others, to violate others' rights. And that is not something that we have a history of allowing people to do in the name of religion, let alone corporations. Your organization has been really involved in tracking and participating in the challenges to the contraception mandate and defending the mandate. What have been some of the most surprising arguments you've heard against the contraception mandate? Well, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's certainly always notable when um, arguments are made against the contraception mandate based on the notion that um, somehow birth control is some kind of optional luxury that women should have to pay for on their own. So, for example, one of the briefs uh, against the mandate in one of the many cases out there said that, you know, women can use their own money to buy uh, contraception or cocaine or cotton candy, whatever they want. And so denying coverage for birth control shouldn't have a real impact because women can always just use their money out of their paycheck to buy their own contraception, which uh, really shows, first of all, a ridiculous trivialization, I think, of the importance of birth control as fundamental preventive health care for women. And it also ignores the fact that cost barriers have a real impact on women's ability to access the most effective and appropriate forms of contraception for them. So, for example, one of the particular forms of contraception that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood are objecting to is the IUD. Um, the IUD happens to be an extremely effective form of contraception, but a form of contraception that has a pretty big cost barrier to entry. It can cost about $800 to get an IUD right at the front end, which means that it's too expensive for lots of people if they don't have insurance coverage for it. And what the contraceptive coverage requirement does is allow, it, it takes away that obstacle and makes sure that if the IUD is the most appropriate form of birth control for this particular woman based on her judgments about her situation and her advice of her healthcare provider, that the cost isn't going to force her to use something that's less appropriate and less effective. And I think that it's, it's a little shocking how, uh, how arguments against the contraceptive coverage requirement ignore those real-world impacts. Are you surprised at the number of amicus briefs that have been filed, and do you have any particular favorites that you think make the argument, well, besides your own, um, your organization, (laughs) but um, do you think that there are any amicus briefs that have been filed that really cut to the heart of, of, of the issues in this case? Well, I think there have been a lot of great briefs that really tell the story from a lot of different perspectives, So, including some unusual perspectives. Uh, So, for example, there's a brief by corporate law professors that talk about how the idea of allowing a corporation to exercise the religion of its shareholders is really contrary to basic tenets of corporate law, which, uh, which really creates an important distinction between the corporation and the people who own the corporation. So I think that's an interesting and important angle. There's 
is another brief filed by the Women's Chamber of Commerce and the LGBT Chamber of Commerce that really talks about all the corporate governance issues that could arise if you recognize a corporate right to exercise religion and how this could really be kind of a pain in the neck for a corporation who was not interested in exercising religion but who made face um, shareholder lawsuits saying, we as your shareholders think that you should exercise religion XYZ, and would be faced with having to navigate these competing claims from stakeholders. Um, there are also some great briefs that really go into the public health interests that are forwarded by this requirement, including ours, but others as well, that talk a lot about how important birth control is to women's health and to the health of the children they bear, since spacing of pregnancy is important to children's health as well as to women's health. And there are, there are some briefs that come from religious groups talking about how if you um, were to grant the Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood the rights that they are seeking, that that really harms religious pluralism in this country, given that it would allow those corporations to really impose their religious beliefs on their employees who come from many different faiths. So I think that those are some of the most important parts of the story that the Supreme Court uh, should be paying attention to. I know it's uh, impossible to really extrapolate conclusions from oral arguments, but it's also really fun to do so. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what we should be looking or listening for at the oral arguments. Well, obviously, sometimes you get some sense of whether the court, whether a particular justice is inclined to accept the arguments of one side or the other. I think that some of the things I'll be looking for is how seriously the justices um, take the fact that um, contraception is a key, a key element of uh, health care for women and is really important to women's equality. Obviously, accepting those principles goes a long way to accepting the importance and validity of the of the requirement. But frankly, I hope that the conversation never gets that far because really the legal question, the legal inquiry should stop in asking whether when you ask whether Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood have the right to exercise religion or whether their shareholders have the right to exercise religion in this way as for profit companies. And my hope is that that's where the entire argument focuses because those should be the questions that really resolve the whole case. I mean, you never have to get to the questions of, well, does this requirement forward compelling interests and is it narrowly tailored to do so or does this requirement actually substantially burden religion? Because it should just go away because for-profit corporations have no business exercising religion. Literally. So that's one possible outcome. And I agree with you. I really hope that the court gets there and it's a short inquiry. What are a couple of the other possible outcomes? Should they provide a little more, I don't know, curious or, or eager to strike at the mandate in more detail? Well, of course, the Supreme Court in some ways can always do whatever the court wants. And it's possible, I suppose, that where Hobby Lobby and Conestoga would 
to succeed in their claim that the court could try to write some very narrow opinion that really was in some way limited to the contraceptive coverage requirement and didn't open the door to all these other potential uh, religious objections to a host of laws protecting employees' rights and protecting the rights of consumers. Um, frankly, I think that that opinion would be really hard to write. So if the court finds that a corporation can exercise religion and then the court has to answer the question of whether this coverage requirement actually substantially burdens the religion of the, the companies or the shareholders. And again, there are lots of good reasons why the court should find that it doesn't, um, because it's the decisions of women and their healthcare providers that will determine whether insurance coverage is actually ever used for contraception. There are a lot of links in the chain before the package of benefits that the employer offers actually results in this particular form of contraception being provided. And in some ways, it's just like when a company uh, gives a woman a paycheck and she decides what she wants to buy with her money. The, the fact that she buys contraception with her money doesn't substantially burden the religion of anybody, and neither does this requirement. So that's another place where the court could say to Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood, you lose. Or if the court found, well, it actually does substantially burden uh, this religious exercise, then the court would look at whether the requirement is a narrowly tailored way of forwarding a compelling interest. Um, and again, we think they should lose there too because of the compelling interests that are being forwarded by this requirement, compelling interests in public health and in gender equality, and that this requirement is narrowly written to forward. So there are lots of different ways that, <laughs> that they could lose. Um, if they win, though, I really am worried about the breadth of whatever decision the court would write because, again, the court can always do what the court does. I mean, Bush v. Gore, it says this, this decision isn't precedent. It really just goes for this matter only. Don't take this seriously going forward or deciding this case. And maybe they would try to say this is just about birth control, which is somehow unique in burdening religion. But I think what's more likely is that if Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood were to win, it would really open a lot of troubling doors for other potential religious objections to laws that we all depend on and rely on. I could not agree with you more. Emily, thank you so much for giving us and the listeners this overview. We'll have a lot to talk about, no doubt, later this summer when the Supreme Court comes down with its decision. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those that's tacked on at the very end of the uh, June decision push, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll come to something swifter. I don't know. Again, they can always do what they do. <laughs> this is true. Emily Martin from National Women's Law Center, thank you so much for joining us. And please, we'll have you back to help us understand what decision the Roberts Court eventually comes to on all of this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to RJ Court Watch and join us for future episodes where we discuss reproductive justice on the march in North Carolina, clinic protests, buffer zones and efforts by the anti-choice movement to weaponize the First Amendment, as well as the meaning of the undue burden standard in an age of targeted restrictions on abortion providers. 